quiet in here. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you could join us, whether you're here in person or joining us via live stream um, or even viewing our service later on. We're really glad that you're here to worship with us and to hear God's word with us. Um, so if you would stand as we sing together.
Again, as we said a minute ago, like we're glad you're here joining us this morning. If you're visiting, um, we're especially glad that you are here. If you're new, don't know who I am. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just great to have you with us this morning, either here in person or online. Before we kind of continue with our time of worship, a couple announcements. We still have a couple uh, need for volunteers, both for a women's ministry leader and a and a Facebook host for hosting our Facebook live stream. So if you're interested in either of those roles, uh, I encourage you to reach out, talk to the office. Uh, we would love to get you connected in that. Uh, otherwise, yeah, we're glad you're here this morning, and we're glad to just enter this time of worship where we just think and celebrate that God's grace is enough, even in the midst of trials and chaos that seem to be going on sometimes. So let's continue worshiping. You can all have a seat. Um, We're going to sing a new song, um, new to us, called Promises. It's by Maverick City Music. Um, And I heard this, I was listening to um, my sister's church from Stillwater, Minnesota online, um, and they did this song, and I'm like, wow, how, how applicable is that to our lives, especially right now? Um, so we just want um, this to be a time of, I mean, if you know the song or if you want to sing along, the words will be on the screens, but otherwise just kind of a time of reflection um, and just just a time to thank God for his faithfulness and just a time to remember how good he is no matter what's going on. Um, so you can feel free to, to sing with us or just to take some time and reflect. Though the earth may pass away, your word remains the same. 
Good morning. Uh, I am Ian. I'm one of the pastors here, for those of you who don't know me. Um, and yeah, thank you, worship team, for that. Um, this would be normally the time where we would say, could the ushers please come forward to collect the offering, but we're not necessarily doing that right now. Um, thank you for all those who have been faithfully giving um, over the last couple of months. I know it's been crazy. But um, you can still give online at tlefc.org or by text, or uh, you can get a check to the church office. Um, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to uh, call and, and ask. We can answer your questions. If you would all just bow your heads with me, um, let's pray. Dear Father God, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place and outside of this place as well, Lord, um, whether it's literally outside our building or if it's online or downstairs or how, however it is, Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to get together, Lord. We look at this world and we see crazy, crazy things happening and we don't know necessarily what to do. Um, but through that all, as, as this last song said, you are faithful and you are in control. We've never had to question that. Even, even when we've, we've seen horrible, horrible things happen, we know that you are faithful and in control. And I ask, Lord, that you would just help, help us believe in you more. Help us trust in you better, Lord. We think of people in our congregation who are having a hard time with, with some things, Lord. Um, we think of uh, people that, that aren't able to be here today. Um, we also specifically lift up John Dirks today, Lord, um, as he uh, is, is appearing to getting, be, be getting ready to meet you, Lord. Um, we ask that you would just bless the Long family as they um, walk through this with him. Give them strength and peace and, and your guidance through this whole thing. We ask your blessing on this congregation and this town, Lord. Help us to shine your light well here. We ask your blessing on the rest of this service. Um, as Pastor Tim comes with the message, as we continue in worship, help us to just focus on you well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you stand for the rest of the worship this morning. Join us. I hear my Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray.
so thankful that you are indeed our, our living hope, that you have conquered death, you have defeated sin, that because of that we can come before you can sing your praises, we can worship you, we can live lives that seek to bring you glory and honor. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. So you have a Bible, and I invite you to turn there. We're in the very last passage of 1 John. So this will be our last sermon in the book. So we're 12 weeks in and wrapping up. And so I'm excited for next week and the three or four weeks following that, we're going to go through the book of Habakkuk. And like, I'm excited for that series because like, the very first words Habakkuk speaks in that passage are like, are, How long, O Lord? Right? And like, if there are more fitting words for right now than how long, O oh Lord, like, I don't know what they are. So I'm looking forward to that series as Habakkuk wrestles with, like, what do we do when life seems unfair, when things don't seem right? And I think it will be a very fitting series for, for the time we're in right now. So, like, many of you are probably familiar with the classic Disney movie Dumbo. It was released in 1941, which... Some of you were alive back then. I was a few years away still. Uh, but, like, I remember watching it as a kid. Right? And, like, it was right up there, like, just beneath Bambi and, like, movies that most traumatized me as a kid. Like, like, nothing will make you feel more certain than having, like, a healthy family life with two happy, loving parents is not sustainable than watching an old Disney movie. Like, they're all orphans or missing a parent or something. Like, it's traumatic. Well, like, that's not really the point, but it's interesting. So in, in Dumbo, right, the title character Dumbo, like he's an elephant with oversized ears. Like these oversized ears, like they lead to him being mocked and ridiculed. Like in the course of the movie, it's revealed that these oversized ears actually help Dumbo to fly, which is a pretty nice skill to have. And I feel like Dumbo, like even though he's ear given the ability to fly, Dumbo becomes convinced that he needs this magic feather he gets from some crows in order to actually be able to fly. And like that feather gives him the confidence to do what he's been able to do the whole time. In the climactic scene of the movie, Dumbo jumps off this flaming building from high up as part of the big circus act. And like he planned for this moment to be the moment that he's going to reveal to everyone that, hey, look, I can fly. But as he jumps the magic feather slips from his grasp and he has a moment of panic. It's like, now what am I going to do? But he's got this little mouse friend named Timothy who's along for the ride and he like starts pleading with Dumbo, like, look, the feather's not actually magic. Like, you can do this. Like, you can fly without the feather. And as is seemingly inevitably, inevitably the case in movies, like at the last possible second, like Dumbo chooses to believe in himself and he unfurled his ears and he begins to fly around the circus tent. And like the moral that Disney seems to want you to learn from that scene is that like if you only believe in yourself, right, you can do great things. If you just have enough self-belief, you can do whatever you want. But the Bible says like that message is garbage. Right? Like believing in yourself, like in your own power, you can do nothing. Like, you can't take a breath. You can't think a thought without the God who created you 
enabling you to do those things. But the Bible does affirm kind of a related truth, which is that like having confidence in our ability to do something is often what enabled us to do that thing. Believing we can do something is what motivates us and equips us to actually do the thing. But where Hollywood and the Bible disagree is like where that source of our confidence should be. Hollywood tells us our confidence should be in our own ability. Well, the Bible tells us that our confidence should be in our status as God's child. That's what we see this morning as we wrap up 1 John. Again, the final passage, this last passage of 1 John, John seeks to summarize and recap all that he has said in this letter. And as he wraps up, his closing message to his readers is this. Knowledge of the true God produces a confident life in God. So that in mind, let's read John's concluding word to his readers this morning. He writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, that we have what we ask of him. If you see a brother or a sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So as we, we jump into this passage this morning, I want to start with the last two verses, and then we'll kind of circle back and work our way through the rest of the passage. Right, so over and over again in this letter, John has referred to his readers as like, dear children and dear friends. Like He's using very affectionate terms. Like It's clear that he loves and cares deeply about these people and their spiritual well-being. And so now, like, here we see him writing very final words to them. Like, he has one last chance to communicate his deepest desire to them. And we see those final closing words in 20 and 21. When John writes, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So all through this letter, like John's main purpose has been to make his reader feel assured of their status as God's children. Like, that's why we call the series Assured. Like, he, is, he wants them to feel confident, to be assured that they are God's children. And he's always rooted that confidence in, the, in their knowledge of the true God. The status of God's children is rooted in the fact that they know the true God. And here, he reminds them one last time that God has 
that the God that has been revealed to them is true. That they can know He is true because He sent His Son, Jesus, to take on the flesh and to live among them. Think way back to the very first passage of this book. In that passage, John insists over and over again that Jesus was really fully human. He talks about how the apostles touched him and saw him and heard him. John insists he was a man. And last week we saw a clip from the series The Chosen, a part of our service. And like the power of that show is that it, it makes the humanity of Jesus come to life. It makes clear what John knew so well, that Jesus was really fully a man. But he was also God. And as both God and man, Jesus gives us an understanding about God that we can't have apart from Jesus. Jesus is God's revelation of himself to us. And through that revelation, we can be absolutely assured that we know the true God. Then we come to verse 21, and John writes, Dear children, keep, yourself, keep yourselves from idols. And like it, it seems like a, a strange and a somewhat like abrupt end to the letter. Like this is the first time in the whole book John uses the word idols, and it's like his last word just, just seems out of place. Like, in fact, like some commentators think that like John was starting to write a new whole section and like got cut off for some reason and just like sent the letter as is. But I think like I would argue that the exhortation to keep yourself from idols makes perfect sense makes perfect sense as a closing appeal if we keep in mind the overall point of this letter. John is writing so that his reader to be assured that they are a child of God and that they have eternal life. And the way they, they can know they have eternal life is by believing that he is the true God and he reveals himself to us in Jesus. And so John's deepest desire, John's deepest hope that his readers, including us, like, would know and believe the true God. And through knowing Him, that we would be assured of our status with Him as His children. So therefore, like, the greatest threat to John's readers is that instead of knowing and believing the true God, that they would chase after false gods. Like, and what are idols? They're nothing but false gods. Tim Keller defines idols this way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbed your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of heart, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. It's John's closing plea to us when he said, keep yourself from idols. Is that nothing would absorb our hearts and our imaginations more than God. That we would not look to any other source to find what only God can give. That we would not look anywhere else for meaning or for significance or for security. And so the question we shall be prompted to ask then is where am I looking for my hope, for my significance, for my for my meaning? Am I looking to my loving creator or am I looking to idols? Am I looking like, to career success to give me purpose or am I looking to God? Am I looking 
to money to make me feel secure? Or am I looking to God? Am I looking to relationships and friendships to make me feel significant and important? Or am I looking to God? Am I looking to like a political leader for hope? Or am I looking to God? John's deepest desire, and my deepest desire for all of us, that we would find all those things, we would find security and purpose and hope, that we would find them in God. That we would know the true God. And therefore, we would keep ourselves from idols. Like, knowing that they cannot give what only God can give. And when we do that, when we find our hope and our meaning and our purpose in the true God, then, John says, we're equipped to live confident lives in God. In particular, he gives us three areas where we can be confident, where we can be assured. The first area, John says, we can have confidence is in our eternal status. If, you, if we know the true God, like we can be confident that we have eternal life. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If we believe in the name of the Son of God, if we believe in Jesus, then John wants us to know that we have eternal life. Not be pretty confident, not optimistic, but like to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to be assured that by believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, our sins are forgiven, and we will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth worshiping God in an, envir- in an environment where there's no more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. And this, this statement in 1 John 5.13, kind of like John's purpose statement for the whole book, John explicitly says, this is why I'm writing. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Because John knows that when his readers are confident of their eternal status, that then some of the other demands of the Christian life don't seem like such a big deal. The call to self-sacrificially love, like to put to death our own desire for the sake of others, right, does not seem like a big deal in the light of eternity. To endure suffering and ridicule for the sake of the gospel does not seem like such a big deal in light of eternity. Pain and suffering and sickness can be endured when we keep eternity in view. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in Romans, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you believe that? Like, do you know Jesus so well that you know you have eternal life? And therefore, whatever hardships, whatever struggles you endure in this life are light and momentary and not worth comparing to the glory that awaits you in eternity. And if you say, yes, I believe that, then the more important question is, like, does your life reflect that you believe that? Are you willing to step into and endure pain and suffering and awkwardness and discomfort 
for the sake of others and for the sake of God's glory, trusting that whatever you endure is light and momentary in comparison? Or do you go out of your way to seek after whatever makes your own life comfortable and easy? Like a deeply rooted confidence that we have eternal life, that this life is not the end, that this world is not all there is, is essential to living the life that God has called us to live. We must live in light of the reality of eternity. And knowing the true God enables us to have that confidence. But not only does knowing the true God assure us that we have eternal life, it also makes us confident in prayer. When we know the true God, when we know what he did for us in Jesus, how how through his death on the cross, he made it possible for our sins to be forgiven in our relationship with God to be reconciled, that then we're free to confidently approach God in prayer. John writes in verses 14 and 15, that's the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Knowing the true God allows us to confidently come to God in prayer. Confident that he heard us and that we have what we asked of him according to his will. But we can't miss the fact that he heard us when we ask according to his will. This is not some name it and claim it promise that like, if only we have enough faith, we can ask whatever we want and we'll get it. It's when we ask according to God's will that he will hear us and he gives us what we ask of him. Which raises the question, how do I know if I'm acting according to God's will? And like, the answer to that is, like, as we get to know God more and more deeply, we become more and more attuned to the desires, to his desires and his will. The more time we spend with God through reading his word and prayer, the more aware of his will we become either because in multiple places the Bible directly tells us this is what God's will is, or because we get to know the character of God and become, become aware of what his will is through knowing him. And as we become more and more aware of his will, the more we can confidently pray to him, confident that we are praying according to his will. But just to kind of help us on our way in knowing what to pray for, in the next two verses, John gives us one example of something we can pray for something that it is God's will. Verses 16 through 17, John says, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So, like, I've learned a lot in my, like, three months being here, stepping into this role, and I've tried to step in and, like, take over as pastor here, like, humbly, and, like, trying to admit there's a lot I don't know. But, like, one of the things I was convinced that before I started, that I don't think I'll be persuaded to change my mind about, so, like, the best pattern for preaching is preaching straight through books of the Bible. And verses like these are the reason why. Like, if I were not committed to preaching through books, I would never preach this passage. Because like, like, 
I wouldn't want to deal with these verses. Like, not because what they teach is offensive or awkward, but simply because like, figuring out what John is saying is hard, and I honestly don't have a great and full answer. Like, similar to last week, when John talked about Jesus coming by water and blood. That just makes you stop and go, what? Like, so here, like, same thing, I read this, and like, there's sin that leads to death, and there's sin that does not lead to death. Like, what is going on there? So John's saying, like, like, an example of praying in God's will, praying to God, like, to pray for a brother or sister that, whose sin does not lead to death. But then he also says that if you pray for someone whose sin does lead to death, that that's not praying according to God's will. Like, so what in the world is the sin that leads to death? And there's lots of respected scholars who have different opinions on this. But I think, again, tentatively, the sin that leads to death is the same sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit that, John talk, or that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12. Jesus says, Matthew 12, 31, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the, the Spirit will not be forgiven. No. Now that doesn't really help all that much because it just changes the question from, like, what if it's sin that leads to death to what if blaspheming the Holy Spirit? But I think at least that passage in Matthew gives us a little more context. It gives us an idea of what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. In that passage, like Jesus cast out a demon, and the Pharisees say, right, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he, this fellow drives out demons. But Jesus, but Jesus, in reply, makes clear that it's by the power of the Spirit that he's casting out those demons. Then he goes on to make this statement, again, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So it seems like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is denying the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? And instead giving credit for his work to a false god or to an idol. Right? And one of the key works of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and to cause us to turn to God, to trust in Jesus, to repent of our sins. Right? And so blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, which is also the sin that leads to death, I think, ultimately, is to deny the Spirit's work of drawing you to God. So if you aren't actively rejecting the work of God in your life, then you aren't committing the sin that leads to death. Right, so, I feel like I had to at least try to address that in order to like faithfully preach this passage. But there's something more in this passage that I think is far more applicable to our lives and maybe even more interesting. In verse 16, John writes, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give him life. Like this moment of honest self-assessment. When's the last time you prayed for a brother or sister because you saw them struggling with sin? Maybe you're holier than me, but like for me the answer is like maybe never. Right? Like that's just not something that comes across my radar. Like occasionally someone will come and confess sin or ask me to pray for them explicitly. But that's not what John describes here. He says, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin, you should pray. It's just you see them, you observe them, like you should pray for them. I'm like, I don't know about you, but when I see someone sin, like my first reaction is like silent judgment. 
Or I don't want to feel superior. Like, I might do something, but at least I don't do that. Like, my first reaction is not to pray for them. Like, my inclination is to gossip about their sin, like, not to pray for their sin. It's, it's like, sadly common for high-profile Christian leaders to have moral lapses and to fall from grace. And then when I see one of those stories, like, my reaction is honestly, like, I, like, try to Google and learn more. Not because me knowing more details of that situation would be helpful, right, but out of a like, morbid curiosity. My reaction is never like, man, I should, I should pray for that man. I should pray that God would move him to repentance. Right, but John says that's what we should do. Right? If you see a brother or a sister commit a sin, you should pray. And John says, in praying that prayer, like, you can be confident that God hears and will answer. So by knowing the true God, we can be confident of eternal life. We can be confident in prayer. And finally, John says, we can be confident in obedience. In verse 18, John writes, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. When we know God, we can be confident that we have the power we need to overcome the sin in our lives. But it's important to recognize two things that this verse is not saying. First, the verse does not say that we never sin. John says like, we do not continue to sin, meaning that we do not repeatedly and habitually commit the same sin over and over without repentance. Rather, when we sin, which we will do, when we're made aware of that sin, we stop. We confess our sin. We turn to God in repentance, trusting that we are forgiven through Jesus' work on the cross. And then second, right, this first does not mean that once we know Jesus, we stop sinning through our own self-effort in order to prove our love and devotion to God, or in order to earn our way into heaven. Right? The power to overcome sin, the power to stop sinning, does not come from within us. John says, the one who was born of God keeps you safe. Again, it's Jesus at work in you that gives you the power to overcome the sin in your life. Right, so if you're here, right, you've been fighting the same battle against sin for an extended period of time, right, and it just feels like a hopeless battle. Right? My urging for you is like, not give up the fight. Right? Like you have the power of God on your side. If you fight that sin, like turn and pray, plead for help again. I can trust that He is strong enough to give you the help you need. Our enemy is strong. Like John says here, like he has the whole world under his control. Like Satan is not a puny and weak enemy; he has the whole world under his control. So it's no surprise that fighting sin is hard. But we have the power of God on our side, giving us the ability and the confidence to fight the sin in our lives. So we said at the very beginning that having confidence in your ability to do something is often what gives you the ability to do it. And through our knowledge of God and what he has done for us in Jesus, we have the confidence that we first we have eternal life. So like, let's live in a way that shows that we are confident that this world is not our home, 
that this life is not all there is. And second, through the knowledge, through our knowledge of God and what He has done for us in Jesus, we have confidence in prayer. Like I'd urge you to avail yourselves of that power and to run to God in prayer as we see need and we see brothers and sisters sinning. And finally, John says, through our knowledge of God and what he has done for us in Jesus, we can have confidence that we have the power to defeat sin. So, let us continue to fight the sin in our lives, trusting that God will help us win the battle. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that you our creator, that you made us, that you created this universe, that you sustain us, that even though we sin and we rebel against you, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. That you reveal yourself to us, that we can know you, that you are not some distant, unknowable God, but you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know you through our trust and faith in Jesus. God, as we know you, as we feel and know and grasp your love for us, your care for us, I pray that it would give us the ability to live a life totally committed to you as we live in confidence of the way you have loved us, the way you have cared for us. God, thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as we prepare to leave, I pray that you would go in the confidence of knowing God. Go confident that you have eternal life. Go confident that he hears your prayers. And go confident that you have the power to live a life that is obedient and glorifying to him. Here it is missed.